0: Hello and Happy Holidays, Asymptote listeners. 2018 is coming to a close and it's time to start making those literary and linguistic resolutions. We will be sharing some new year reading resolutions from our Asymptote staff members in early January, so make yours now and then take a look at what we will be optimistically getting up to. What will you read this year? What language or languages will you learn As an educator, I've been trying to bring a more global and multilingual approach to teaching into my classrooms. In September, I had the honor of teaching in a high school in San Pedro Sula, Honduras thanks to the Our Little Roses Poetry Fellowship, and my brilliant bilingual students were blown away when I showed them the asymptote site and its steps of languages and writing. Now, back in Spain, I've dipped into the Asymptote archives to find poems in Polish, Russian, Dutch, Italian, and Spanish, the home languages of my English class students, in order to think about grammar and the parts of speech in terms of translation as a way to mix things up. And an invaluable resource to teachers around the globe is our Asymptote for Educators page under that EDU tab on the main page. There, our mission is to equip university and high school educators with the tools they need to bring literature from all over the globe into their classrooms. The world is a gloriously diverse place and we believe all students should experience its literary, linguistic, and cultural wealth to the fullest extent possible. That's why on the education page, you can find an educator's guide for every new asymptote issue. Each guide offers a thematic breakdown of that issue's content, relevant information about the context of various pieces, and possible discussion questions and exercises. In the past couple months, I've been reminded of just how expansive and huge asymptote journal is. If you have not already The 30 Issues in 30 Days feature from September is an enlightening and inspiring read where you can explore the history of the journal and learn more about its inner workings. To date, we are up to a staggering 84 languages from 105 different countries and are constantly searching for new ways to expand our focus. This holiday season, please help support our mission of facilitating encounters between languages in whatever way you can. Help share our message with us. I'll also give you a little insider information. I can't tell too much, but we'll just say that there is an absolutely gorgeous winter 2019 cover in the mix which will see the light of day in mid-January, along with an amazing new issue. This cover art is getting framed and put on a wall on my end, and the upcoming issue holds an amazing host of feminine-driven talent and will feature our translation contest winners as well. Speaking of amazing covers, in this issue we're joined by translator and poet Erin Coleman, whose first full-length poetry collection, Threat Come Close, which came out with four-way books this past spring, boasts a beautiful cover design, and the poems inside are more than worthy of it. I must first recommend that read and press listeners to be on the lookout for his next projects. Aaron Coleman has lived in various cities in Spain and South Africa and was a recipient of a Fulbright Scholarship, and later was a Philip K. Jensen Memorial Fellow, awarded to Outstanding Translators of Color. He joins us to talk about his studies in international blacknesses, and is currently a PhD student in comparative literature at Washington University in St. Louis. Coleman comes to literary translation with a poet's sensibilities, and we will get into that wonderful overlap between a writer-translator's own creative projects and their translation work, each constantly inspiring the other. Now, back in June, I had the pleasure of sitting down with translator and writer Lawrence Schimmel in Madrid, and our conversation was, in part, inspired by John Keane's essay, Translating Poetry, Translating Blackness, which you can read on the Poetry Foundation's website. It is a must-read, and you can also revisit my conversation with Keane from our October episode. Again, I was left feeling ridiculously inspired and with hope that Keane's appeal, that we need more translation. Translations of literary works by non-Anglophone Black diasporic writers into English, particularly by US-based translators, is in fact being answered. So, Aaron Coleman, thank you so much for sitting down with Asymptote for our podcast. You've just gotten back from the Alta Conference. It looks like you were judging a contest there. How was it?
1: Yeah, it was, you know, it was a humbling experience to. uh be judging the contest alongside um, Daniel Borzutski and Mani Rao, who are also, you know, accomplished and, and much more experienced translators in their own right. But yeah, I, I really I really enjoyed the experience. I mean, this is my second Alta. The first one was just last year, and I found out about it by uh, Susan Bernofsky, who told me about the Travel Fellowships. And then also the, I believe it's the Peter K. Jensen Fellowship for people who are translating underrepresented groups or languages and translators of color and it's just good to be in a place where there's a a common baseline understanding of the centrality of of translation to literary culture like so many of the texts that we read are translated, and at the same time, the process of translation is is also, I think, a process of self expression in such a way that it needs to be thought about artistically. And I was on some panels that were talking about that. I could go into some anecdotes already, but we'll we'll probably get there. Well, actually, maybe well, yeah. this is the tell moment.
0: me tell me about some tell me about the panels.
1: Yeah, well, one of them that was really cool was called, if I remember correctly, it was called uh, Feedback Loop: Translator Writer Translator, and it was about the relationship between people's translating their own creative writing and their scholarship or whatever else that they they do, and how those things sort of inform each other and the various paths that people had taken. And it was a it was a big panel, and it was at like nine o'clock in the morning, I think, on Saturday. <laughs> so we kind of we didn't know how it was going to turn out.
0: So this was about people belief. translating themselves.
1: No, no, people that were doing whatever translating they were doing, but ah, okay. also. Like, creative writers
0: ah yeah um, okay
1: yeah i think someone maybe because there were six of us so someone might have been a self-translator but the majority of folks were just scholars or biographers or journalists or translators or everyone was a translator but they also had all these other things mm-hmm. that they were doing and it was organized by marguerite fight who's at Bennington College and just sort of like a, I, I would say from what I'm learning in my short time already is in Alta, is just like a pillar of the Alta community. Mm. Katrina Dotson, who was doing some really um, exciting work from Brazilian Portuguese. Esther Allen, who's doing, translating from Cuba, I, usually fiction and not poetry. And a few other people, I believe Liliana Valenzuela, Bruna Dantas Lobos, I believe as well too. It was a it was a long list, and Stephanie Heim. I don't want to forget anybody <laughs> on there too. But it was like it was a great synergy. And the anecdote that I was going to bring up was that Esther Allen at one point was talking about how folks think of when an actor interprets a script. They really lift up the actor, and they understand that the actor has done something. At the level of self-expression, that is giving life to the script in a particular way, and she was saying that we ought to, we could also think about translation in a similar way. Anyone could look at the original text and translate it, but it takes something else to really sort of interpret it expressively in a particular way, given the tools and nuances and understandings that that translator brings to that. And so, that for me was sort of exciting to think about, just really centering all the nuance and uniqueness that goes into each individual translation. Like each translator brings their own particular set of ingredients to the thing that they're looking at. And that to me is sort of fundamental for my own work
0: too. Definitely. And so how, how did you get started in translation? And a little bit of a connected question, what came first, poetry or translation? How did you get started as a poet? And where do you see those overlapping?
1: It's like, it's such a winding road, Leila. It's like been a <laughs> lot of, right? If, I, you know, if I'm thinking about a kind of origin story, that for me, it started with poetry. I kind of just grew up sort of in love with hip-hop, particularly with Andre 3000 from Outkast. Yeah. Sort of
0: like,
1: you know, the ability to sort of weave stories, but like a hyper-awareness of like the story ability of language and also the musicality of language and how those things can sort of co-constitute and hold each other up and build each other up in these really sort of inventive and incredible ways. And so, you know, between when I was a junior in high school, the Love Below Speaker Box album came out. And I also had to do a book report from a list of books, and I picked Invisible Man, and I didn't know that i was picking the ralph allison invisible man i thought that i was picking like the hg wells like oh
0: really oh because i I love i love the ellison invisible man oh the Ellison!
1: it changed my life yeah it changed my life like the the intersection of having andre 3000's album and reading invisible man just got me thinking about americanness and masculinity and and sexuality, and nostalgia, and memory, and blackness, of course. And all these ways that just kind of, like, I just felt everything just sort of light up. And then at the same time, too, my parents got, like, the month-long free subscription, like, HBO sample for, like, a month. And deaf poetry was a thing that was on oh, yeah. late night at that point. And so, like, I saw these people, you know, interpreting text live, like, embodying poetry. And I think that the three of those things was sort of just like set me, set me writing. Makes me think of that. I believe it's a Sylvia Plath line. Love set you going like a fat gold watch. I feel like that was when everything just like started. Yeah. And then I, you know, I got into, I went to Kalamazoo College and it's just small little liberal arts school in Michigan. And I went there, you know, I was playing football at the time and I, I didn't have any sort of plan, but one of the sort of really wonderful things that I realized about being at that school was that like 60, 65% of the folks that are, that attend go on study abroad, then you don't pay any extra tuition. It's just part of your...
0: Oh, that's great. Your, yeah, yeah,
1: it's it's amazing. I think it's one of the... It might be the oldest study... Well, I don't know about the oldest, but it's one of the oldest study abroad programs in the country. And the cool thing is not only do folks leave to study abroad, like not only do people from the U.S. leave to study abroad, but people from the various institutions where they go to study, they come to Kalamazoo in their place.
0: Ah, oh, so it's like a real exchange program.
1: Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. So the, the campus ends up being international in a, in a very different way. And I studied abroad my, my junior year in this town called Cáceres, in like southern, Extremadura, like in southern Spain, sort of on the border with uh, Portugal. Oh
0: yeah, but um, that is like a, not a touristy area. No one goes. No, to X no, it's not touristy at all. <laughs> I was
1: off on my own. You know, I had just—I was going through a lot of things. I played football in, in college, and at the same time that I decided to move abroad to do that study abroad was the same time that i ended up quitting playing football and so mm-hmm. i was just i was looking for some solitude and i was looking for some reflective space and it was it was mind-blowing like in my family my most of my family is you know products of the great migration like from the south and some some places along um in pennsylvania and no one had really no one had traveled in that way and i remember the question i was sort of being like why would you you know. What what's over there? What would you go? You know, and I didn't really know. I was just kind of doing it, thankfully, because the opportunity opened up. And I and I I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you know it's a bigger conversation, but there's a lot of ways that I feel like you know, as a Black American, you often felt you're often made to feel as though the U.S. isn't quite home, you know, or Definitely. you're sort of a, a hyphenated American in one way or another. And so, yeah, I've always had a had an interest in you know, I'd, I'd heard about Baldwin and Richard Wright and all the Black folks that had. You know, gone to Europe in the sort of mid century um and earlier than that, and I was thinking about like, well, this is my chance to do it. so yeah, I got there, and I just really fell in love with it in a lot of ways, not because it was perfect in any way, but because the opportunity to have another language in my head completely changed my relationship to English, yeah, and as a poet, it was just like whoa i can see language in a whole different way i can understand communication in a whole different way and then socially too it was just wonderful to see america from the outside to see the united states from the outside and this is like 2007 2008 and so you know obviously it was politically it was an interesting time at the end of george bush's uh second term and the primaries beginning and all of that. And so I was just looking at the U.S. from a different angle, and that seemed very valuable to me. I actually had some opportunities to, um, I coached this 7th and 8th grade girls basketball team, and I played on a basketball team, this little farm league basketball team, and I just felt myself in translation all the time. I felt myself trying to create various kinds of connections uh, where it didn't seem possible to bring certain things of myself over. And yet I was playing basketball, which is something that I could do with my eyes closed, but yeah. I was like figuring out all the words of how to talk about it with yeah, these people. So it was yeah. like, translating it in a, in a particular way. So I'll fast forward, because I could ramble on and on. But I, <laughs> essentially, I came back to Kalamazoo College and an opportunity opened up to, to apply for a fellowship That would allow me to go study in south africa and so i went to south africa this like the summer of my um going into my senior year and i worked at the mzizi kunene foundation um and mzizi kunene wrote the shaka zulu epic poem so he's just like he's considered like the shakespeare of africa is what they say although Hmm. you know that that's maybe an unnecessary we don't need to call him Shakespeare. He's... Yeah, you
0: don't need to qualify that, it like that. You know? yeah.
1: exactly, right, <laughs> right? Being there, all these young people... I was doing writing workshops with young people, and people were translating themselves all the time between isiZulu Zulu and English, and they were writing things that were seamlessly flowing between both. And it just got me really... I was thinking about translation from a whole different level because I, did, I was, like, learning isiZulu Zulu, little bits of it while I was there. And so that inspired me to... Uh, take up the idea of trying to apply for a Fulbright in order to do a bilingual poetry project at a high school, at a bilingual high school in Madrid. And so I ended up getting that and then moving to Madrid. And that's when translation started to really become a sort of centerpiece because it was something that I was always thinking about being a teacher of English in Spain and in Madrid. And this random opportunity once came up where one of my roommates who was Spanish at her university, they were looking for native English speakers to translate on the red carpet at the 2010 MTV Music Awards. What? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. How crazy is that? And I was like, "Well, shoot, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a native speaker. I'll give it a shot." And at this point, I had been living there for like I think a year and a half plus the year that I lived during study abroad. It was, it was wild. It was, it was wonderful. Like Bob was there, like very random, you know, stuff. But just to see just seeing black folks out of the United States in my, like in instances like that and like the Senegalese community in Madrid. um,
0: Yeah. That was something that honestly surprised me when I came to Europe. Like, right. right. Yeah.
1: Or just like black folks that are just like native French Black folks yeah. that are like, you know, I just, we don't have that sort of awareness. And so that was the thing that got me, now when I think about what I'm doing with my PhD, the crux of what I'm doing is trying to think about how literary translation can be a tool to make more vivid the relationships between different Afro-descendant peoples around the Americas and ultimately, hopefully around the world. And so, and I, cause I feel like there's all these instances where you run into Black folks in different places and there's some, not that every, people are not the same, but there's a relation there. You know, there's something there in terms of having to respond to legacies of colonialism, yeah. legacies of the Chinese slave trade, mm-hmm. legacies of and realities of white supremacy, of anti-black prejudice, of the way that blackness is exoticized. All these things manifest in various ways in various countries, both in the Americas and in the West and Europe as well. And I would imagine everywhere. Definitely. You know? There's something about that that is driving me to kind of think about what it means to be an Afro-descendant translator working with languages of the West. Mm -hmm.
0: And is that how you got connected with the AWP panel of Translating Blackness and and John Keene's essay? Was it finding the essay first or what what was that connection?
1: So after I did the ALTA panel, the ALTA was sponsoring this Translating Blackness panel at AWP. Mm-hmm. And because they had heard about the work that I was doing with Nicolas Guillen, they invited me to be on the panel. I found out about John Keane's article, I believe in the summer of 2017. So it had been out for a year. I kind of came to it kind of late. Mm-hmm. But the thing was, it was one of those like magical moments where it's like, wow, this person is like coalesced and like brought together all of these things that I was thinking about, that I didn't really have a language for. And I just feel so seen.
0: And I feel
1: so like, I feel like I'm not crazy that I'm having these ideas about trying to think about the relationship between various formations of blackness, I guess we could say around the world and how we might see those see those communities and peoples as being in conversation and related. And so, yeah, it was like, it was the end of my first year of my PhD program, which is in comparative literature. And, you know, I, I'm, I love my program. I'm very grateful to it. It's a hybrid program where I can both do the critical work, firstly, the creative work of translating Nicolás Guillén's 1967 collection, The Great Zoo, but then also critical work of thinking about how to use translation as a, as a tool to make vivid the African diaspora, as I was mm-hmm. saying. And, you know, so in my comparative literature program, we're often, we talk about transnational things and we talk about comparing countries, but there's not really a space to talk about how to compare marginalized people from different countries, like how to talk about Afro-descendants in relation to each other. And so I'm just grateful that uh, John Keane's article was something that made me say, okay, I can keep going in this direction. And then I'm also grateful that my program has been open enough to let me, uh, you know, to see the see the value of what I'm trying to do. And it's been a useful sort of cocoon or incubator of some kind to really sort of work on these ideas and work on the translations.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. And how did you get started on the Nikolaskian project as well? Like, how did you find him? How did you find his work and start working on it?
1: I just randomly, randomly came across some of his translations in um, an anthology that is somewhere around my desk right now. (laughs) (laughs) The Whole Island, Six Decades of Cuban Poetry, Mm. um, edited by Mark Weiss, which just has a just a compendium of, of Cuban poetry that I came across just randomly at first, actually. In I believe it was in a, it was in a barn. And this is the crazy, this is how, you know, fate does these strange things. Because it was, <laughs> I was at AWP in Minneapolis and I had gotten there a little bit earlier. So I went into this Barnes and Noble that was downtown and just came across it. And I read the poems in their guitar and the river's. And I just saw this consciousness that was—it was diasporic, not even in a theoretical way. It was just creating a new kind of landscape for thinking about blackness in the Americas. Mm-hmm. Like in this in this poem, "The Rivers." Well, I should explain the whole concept of the of the collection first. So, Nicolás Guillén is, you know, most famous probably for "Motivos de Son" and "Songroco Songo, his earlier works, 1930, and the ways that he's been compared to Langston Hughes and the ways that they, you know, they had a relationship in, in in one way or another. We saw each other while they were both journalists in 1937 in Madrid during the Spanish Civil War. Langston Hughes translated some of his earlier work in the late 1940s. But the collection The Great Zoo is, and to me, it seems like an aberration from some of Guillen's other work because it's just, the poems are just these very tight, shrewd, clever, conceit, imagistic poems. And they're all Each poem is a being that is transmogrified into some sort of monster that is trapped in the space of a cage. Now the things in the cage are, as I said, rivers, a guitar, Alabama, the police, (laughs) clouds, the North Star, hunger, the KKK, like crazy, There's there's Haitian, all sorts of Haitian. It's very diasporic in consciousness in a way that I've never seen it sort of cooked into the ingredients of a project. It's not like he created a sort of like theoretical thing and laid it out. He just made the poems stake those claims by the things that he mentions in the poem. And, And obviously the idea of having the zoo and having these poems be a visitor or tourist looking into the cages of the zoo gets at Western exoticism, gets at who is caged and who is uncaged. Gets at this idea, you know, it just, it just touches on all of these transatlantic Afro-descendant issues and anxieties in a way that I had never seen anyone do it. And at the same time, reading those poems, I felt like, you know, the collection was uh, published in 1967, the first edition. And I was thinking about myself in relation to it 50 years later as a black American. And so it just became this thing that I felt just sort of like unspeakably compelled to work on. And I was just working on it, even though I was finishing up my MFA. And I was just, it was just, it, I realized that working on translation was different offshoot of my creativity that had something to do with my own writing, but then was also its own thing. In my research, I found that there's, you know, when we think about, there's, well, there's actually there's a a legacy of Black Americans translating Afro-Cuban, which to me is something that I've just discovered in my own oh, Yeah, work. I,
0: had no, I had no idea about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first instance that I found is James Weldon Johnson, who mm-hmm. writes, uh, or who um, edits the the anthology, the seminal anthology, the Book of American Negro Poetry. In the preface to it, in 1922, he talks about translating Placido, this poet who uh, was, yeah. uh, right, right, exactly, this poet who was thinking of the word assassinated, um, but not assassinated, he was executed. Uh, via firing squad uh, in 1844, because of the La Escalera uh, uprisings, um, his involvement in one way or another, or alleged involvement. And uh, he had been translated by William Cullen Bryant at one point, um, and basically... James Weldon Johnson retranslates him and says that, you know, I, I I go into this more. I'm keeping some of the details away because this is part of my dissertation research. Basically, he goes about translating him with a certain level of intention to the fact that he comes from an Afro descendant background. Placido was abandoned by his white mother when he was a child and didn't know his mother. And the poem that he wrote was called Despedida a mi madre en la capilla. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so goodbye to my mother. and uh, in the in, you know the chapel hospitals sort of thing, it's not a poem of a sentimental goodbye. It's a poem that is much more complicated in terms of questions of belonging, questions of dignity, questions of self worth. And so you know, James Wilden Johnson dives into that, and, uh, and he tries to reflect that in his translation. And then you have you know not too far after you have Langston Hughes translated Langston Hughes and Ben Carruthers trying to translate and create an anthology of Nicolás um sort of mid-century, like 1940s, 50s. Um, and then you have, you know, you have that. And uh, I just was trying to think about what led me to want to translate him as a Black American myself. I think seeing that sort of, seeing those historical instances of that, just the, the value of seeing each translation as a interpretation that is reflective of the target culture and the moment that it was created mm. and um, how it seems valuable for me to be doing that right now you know when i come across these poems that are thinking of you know just the fact of me reading this poem about this police this transmogrified being called the police that is in a cage in a zoo as a black man in 2018 is always an experience when i read that aloud it's kind of a dizzying thing i know, for myself reading it and from what i can sort of sense from the audience when I read it in front of them. So those sorts of intersections to me not only highlight the the incredible nature of the work that Guillen originally created, but it also sort of talks about the relationship between original text and a translator. And it gets at this sort of, these complicated relationships around different spaces of the African diaspora. And I should say also too that um, Roberto Marquez, poet from the Northeast, I believe, I think he's from New York, um, translated these poems right in 19... I believe 1972, it was his first translations of uh, the Great Zoo. And so it's really, um, it's wonderful to sort of see a legacy. You know, Guillén is, is, for as little as he's, as he's known, for, like, he's not very known very well in the United States, and yet he's a, he's a giant, he's definitely a giant. So it's wonderful to be one of the many people that have gotten to this tradition of trying to translate Nicolas Guillén.
0: Mm. Well, and that's, what you're saying now is is reminding me of actually something from, from your book, Threat Come Close. In the second very many hands you talk about, like, of language displaced in veins. Oh, uh, yeah. And, like, thinking of that, diaspora, it, not just in Spanish or in French or in whatever language. Like, I mean, the book is about a lot of things. I mean, there's, like, a lot of desire and there's so much in it, but I couldn't help read it like from the lens of translation and from the lens of language and then like when I got to poems with Spanish like honing in on those and it's always interesting for me to read works by poets who are also translators because it seems like translation gets into their work Um, and I'm wondering if those things got into your work after you started being a translator I mean I don't know when the book pieces of it were written before or after you were more actively being involved in translation but in one of the first poems you talk about being turned into translation and then in a later one you talk about like enjoy the translation of my body and whose mouth and it's like that that word specifically is popping up and so yeah. I was wondering if you no. would talk a little bit about that and the way it's gotten into your work your other work well,
1: thank you so much for your attention to the work you know that's like the the greatest compliment is that uh just glad that it resonated enough to to, to inspire that question because yeah for me it's definitely um it's definitely something that was sort of simultaneously in my mind as i was thinking about trying to you know to work on the guienne translations but also just you know that uh that line as you as you brought up from very many hands the, um, of languages displaced in veins is something that You know, I always think about there's this, you know, and not to get wrapped up any sort of in any sort of easy nostalgia, but I don't think that we can, we cannot just turn a blind eye to the fact that the reason why black Americans speak English is because of the way that systematically other languages were silenced, shut down, not allowed, you know, just we're talk- I feel like languages are just placed in veins because we come from people that had different languages and we don't have access to that
0: anymore. Yeah.
1: And obviously that's happening, you know, on various levels for different people. But when you think about the legacies of the transatlantic slave trade, you think about the intentional stamping out of languages and cultures. And so it makes me think about that reality, but then again, all the ways that language is also so much more than just syntax and particular words like language languages are embodied in a particular way and so when i think about it makes me think about all the ways that something of some there's something that has survived there's something that has survived whether it's you know not whether it has to do with particular relationships to rhythm or musicality whether it has to do with the ways in which syncretic religions sort of arise but there's this idea of languages being displaced into blood you know, obviously is a metaphor. And at the same time, it's a way that I think I'm thinking about all of the people's cultures and languages that came before and how they inspire how I how I operate in English and how I move through the world. Yeah. You know, um, and so that the idea of translation, I think, you know, obviously, when we get into the, the etymological roots of it, this idea of something being carried across or being brought over, yeah. um, there, that to me is, you know, that's so in line with what we're thinking about when we start thinking about people literally were carried across and brought over in terrifying yeah. ways yeah. or since then they've come in their own ways. And so, you know, there's, I think it's a very metaphorically rich word and it's something that isn't foregrounded. You know, we don't think about the ways that we're translated and yet I feel like we, we often are.
0: Yeah, definitely. And then one of those poems too that goes into spanish also as somebody who did not grow up speaking spanish but who now like plays with spanish in their poetry when i started doing it it felt a little strange but it was almost it it almost happened naturally in a way where it came out of wordplay and i was wondering if it was the same for you because i i noticed in some like in some of those lines uh the conquistador sendors like it seemed like it was right. it's coming out of playfulness and almost this kind of like I mean English and Spanish are related, you know yeah. through Latin and it seems like some of some of your wordplay is like finding the bridge and like the relation between the languages and almost like like showing that kinship, you know, showing where the hinges are almost
1: yeah. I I love that. I love that of like showing where the hinges are. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. I mean That poem in particular, Elegy for Apogee, that to me is, you know, that poem to me is one of the poems that's closest to the ecstatic in the collection. And I think that there are various sort of modes from which I write, but poems like that, poems like Saint Seduction, very many Mm -hmm. hands to a certain extent. Most of the saint poems really are born out of this sort of ecstatic where, I don't know, it's not quite persona, but I just felt myself sort of. Those are poems that I was chasing to write down. Those are poems where the lines are coming, and I'm just trying to figure out how to be a vessel for it. And yeah. I know that sounds sort of. I hope that doesn't sound cliche, but that's what it feels no, like. No,
0: that's yeah. That,
1: you know, and so I think I'm also again because of my our relationship, at least my, how I see my relationship to English as a as a Afro descendant and as a Black American is that, you know, I refuse to. Belong. I don't belong to English in any easy way. I'll I'll use English in the ways that I see fit, and I'll do the same with Spanish. Yeah, um, and I'll do whatever language you know. I'm working on my French as well. I'm trying I to need get to. <laughs> more. right, right. Well, it makes sense, right? It makes sense when you yeah. think about how to move around the sort of transatlantic world. You know, I mean, like, yeah. those are the. Languages I've been trying that, to know.
0: go like Spanish, French, Arabic. Is my Hey, it's my idea, oh, yeah, to curve I, down
1: <laughs> yes, well, you're in the right space in yeah. Spain, oh my yeah. goodness, um, for me I'd, I'd like to move towards Portuguese, but i'm I'm slowed uh, Portuguese down' is beautiful. I'm just got
0: yeah it's gonna
1: be for the for the moment it's it's English, Spanish, and French, um, mm. so that moment in the poem when it sort of slips into Spanish and then it's just going and then it's kind of conquistador sindores is, is both doing like sin and also seen like without doors. And then also when you say that out loud, people that aren't speaking in both languages, they might see the past participle seen, you know, uh, saw yeah, this, yeah. yeah. And so there's all sorts of ways that that is, is read on multiple levels when it's heard as well. Yeah. So, but I mean, for me, the reason why those lines show up in Spanish and the reason why any line shows up in Spanish and threat come close is because I didn't know how to say it in English. It just came that way. Yeah. You know, and it, it's that thing where you know things are not everything is a cognate and perhaps nothing is a cognate mm-hmm. you know i think there's um it's like i i can't remember this essay that i was reading maybe it was robert haas but um basically just understanding that like even when we translate the word bread you know bread and bond they just have completely different roots they just come from different experiences and they come from different traditions and so you can sort of set up the relation between the even the most simplest word but very often the affective reality of that word and the history that it brings with it is just very different and so when i write things in spanish is because they came to me in spanish and it's they i wouldn't know how to put them it would be very i don't know if i could translate myself because it would, it would get real tough. <laughs> I'd be I'd be too fastidious. I'd want to. I'd be trying to perfect things in a particular way because
0: well, it's um, it's like hyper editing. It's like editing to a new oh, level.
1: Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. It is. It's like deeply, deeply, deeply. I, I don't even know if I could see it clearly enough to, to
0: yeah to be able to. Try. All right. Well, thank you so much. I think that's a good that's a good note to end on. But um, I hope we continue this conversation.
1: Me too, Layla. This is a joy. Like I thank you very much. Thank you mm. for the opportunity.
0: Thank you. I loved it. This year has been an inspiring one for literary translation. I'm excited to read those translations when they are out, and I've also been excited to follow work from the rest of our Asymptote community. For weeks, I've kept open a tab on my phone for an article from a journal, Jacket 2, a conversation between poet grammarians, excerpted conversation between poet Serena Chopra and Asymptote's own Aditi Machado. That great title and wanting to catch up on what Aditi was up to made me read, but what kept it open for those couple weeks was the brilliant leaps their conversation ended up taking. I could not stop revisiting their words. Their discussion centers around their books, both released in 2017, Chopra's Ick and Machado's Some Beheadings. Now both are at the top of my list for holiday reading, but from the piece I understood, both were using line breaks as sort of radical hinges and tools with which to break down sentences and concepts to better get at their roots. Thinking about how these works would work in different languages, Ick especially seemed like it would be a wonderful challenge as much as its concepts would be a gift to those living similar experiences. Chopra explains how, in her words, the book imagines that as the rise is happening aspects of identity are shedding and falling from the ascending figure anything that makes the ick unique clothes accent skin color hysterics feminists will fall into the city lakes below as a way to investigate capital and appropriation the text then questions are these fallen aspects flotsam per maritime law anyone can claim them or jetsam If discovered, they must be returned to the owner. I can't help but think how all of these narratives, all these different and diverse diasporas, speak to one another. These experiences are shared, and the more I read stories by writers with different backgrounds, but which feel like they could have been torn from my own life, I feel renewed and surrounded by community, however far away it might be. Translation is some kind of magic. Reading works and translation is such a gift, and a great New Year's resolution would be to do a translation-only year. If this is anyone's resolution, I'd like to remind listeners that if they have not already, they should jump on the Asymptote Book Club, specially curated by our award-winning team based across the globe on six continents. The Asymptote Book Club is a new way to discover world literature. You can sign up to receive by post a new handpicked fiction title released each month, along with exclusive perks and extras, including discussion groups. This is a great way to support Asymptote, and the Asymptote Book Club, which also just got a newly revamped webpage, is now available to EU and UK readers. So start your 2019 off right. Well, that's all for now. I'll catch you guys in the new year, and happy reading